0: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for Grand Rounds today. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Constantine Carvelis, who's a professor of medicine at uh, University of Alberta. He's trained in both critical care medicine as well as GI hepatology. He also is an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health, also at the University of Alberta. Um, Dr. Uh, Carvelis is an expert in the use of extracorporeal liver support, such as MARS, And he's here today to discuss his new work about the use of MARS in patients who have acute liver failure. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Carvelis. I'm going to turn it over to you. We have a very uh, minor technical difficulty, and we'll get the uh, audio recording uh, aligned as soon as we possibly can. One of the subtle differences is because uh, in the example of acetaminophen toxicity, which is the most common cause of acute liver failure, is that uh, because uh, alterations in, uh, in metabolism, especially neuro metabolism, happens so rapidly that there is a group of patients that may develop intracranial hypertension. And this is something that we do not see in uh, cirrhotic patients. And also in contrast to acute on chronic liver failure, given that this is a necroinflammatory process, in in several cases, there is potential for some reversibility. So um, there are, starting with ACLF or acute on chronic liver failure, there are a few different uh, definitions depending on what part of the world you're in, if you're in Europe or North America or in Asia. Uh, part of the reason for this is in Asia, the most common cause of chronic liver disease is hepatitis B. But really, the, the way to think about this, and this is kind of a combined European-American definition Um, is essentially the development of decompensated cirrhosis uh, with some kind of superimposed uh, precipitant resulting in multi-organ failure, uh, portending a high three-month mortality. So the reason that we usually get involved as intensive care providers, why would an ACLF patient end up in the ICU? Primarily it's for things such as sepsis and septic shock, uh, acute kidney injury, of which one uh, subset is a patarenal syndrome, other causes of circulatory failure, and encephalopathy potentially requiring intubation, variceal bleed, and hemorrhage uh, requiring temporization and, and uh, treatment, and then respiratory failure. So um, in terms of the, uh, this definition of ACLF, um, I just point to, to, a, to a very important study called the Econonic Study, and this was published by a large European consortium. And essentially, this was meant to be an evidence-based uh, definition uh, where they enrolled 1,343 patients with decompensated cirrhosis into this study, of which uh, 415 ended up developing organ failure, meeting the definition of acute on chronic liver failure. And you kind of see the definitions here that the simplest way to remember this is stratifying patients based on, on ACLF grade 0, 1, 2, or 3, is that if you're ACLF grade 1, you've got one organ failure. And I'll show you in the next slide that this correlates very um, is kind of an um, uh, similar to what was previously arrived with the SOFA score. Um, and if you're ACLF grade two, it's two organ failures and ACLF three is three or more organ failures. And what they found in this study was that there was a stepwise increase in 28 and 90 day mortality once you accrued uh, increasing numbers of organ failure. So just to kind of keep that in mind. Um, I always said that I wish I had thought of this, of, uh, of doing a, a trial of kind of modifying the uh, CLIF or the, soil, the original SOFA score, and then trying to derive this in, in liver failure patients. This was done by the um, by the Cliff group, the Easel Cliff group, and essentially it's it's six organ failures, it's uh, hepatic, renal, uh, neuro, uh, coagulation, which is a little bit uh, different. It's based on the INR rather than the platelet count, circulatory um, and respiratory. The other thing that this group has also done is they've come up with a nomogram. Uh, you can actually find this online if you go to the Easel Cliff website, um, where essentially adding a um, the number of organ failures and a logarithmic score, along with age and white count, that you end up with uh, with a scoring system between zero and a hundred. And why this is important, um, this is actually data that we published looking at uh, externally validating this CLIF ACLF score that once you get a score of above 70, and often this is, you know, four or more organ failures, this kind of portends an over 90% mortality at at 28 days. So you are able to stratify patients with, with various prognoses, and this is obviously in the absence of liver transplantation. The other thing I do want to mention with ACLF is that it it can be in certainly if you have somebody that isn't a transplant candidate, it can be very challenging. But I do want to highlight that ACLF can be dynamic. And in the same study, we noted that about 40% of patients once they got ICU support improved by at least one organ failure. So there is a group of patients that have some reversibility. Um, And often we know kind of after about 72 hours, you know, the, uh, certainly in the absence of transplant, if those patients are likely to, to to walk out of the hospital versus those that will not, that likely won't um, survive. So, you know, what would the rationale if I had a blood purification device in somebody with acute on chronic liver failure, keeping in mind that they, you know, at baseline have a scarred liver? So potentially, could you improve hepatic encephalopathy and get the patient extubated? Could you improve their hemodynamics? if they came in with acute kidney injury or hepatorenal syndrome, could we improve their renal function? But I think probably the most important thing is that could it be used potentially as a bridge for somebody on the transplant list to kind of broaden out the transplant window and keep them alive awaiting a liver transplant? So as mentioned, in contrast to acute on chronic liver failure, uh, acute liver failure is rare. Um, And really, it's defined by in somebody with an absence of of uh, any kind of underlying chronic liver disease, the development of encephalopathy um, uh, and synthetic liver dysfunction. So it doesn't matter whether your INR is 1.5 or 6, you don't have acute liver failure in this setting unless you have hepatic encephalopathy. And this uh, definition from uh, from King's, from John O'Grady and colleagues, they they further went on to delineate different subtypes of acute liver failure, where hyperacute, this is classically your acetaminophen patient, that either has an intentional or a staggered overdose, and then within seven days developing cephalopathy and, and uh, synthetic dysfunction. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the subacute liver failure patients, which is more likely to be an idiosyncratic drug reaction where you're taking an antibiotic, and initially you might have some elevated liver tests, and then you go to your family doctor because you're feeling a little bit itchy, and then you find out your bilirubin's 110, and then you get sent to the hospital, and it's only weeks and weeks later that you're developing kephalopathy and, and liver failure. So I've always uh, found ALF to be very interesting because I, I call it an intensivist disease because it's multi-system. You can get intracranial complications. As, and I, I mentioned one of the differences between ALF and ACLF is the development of cerebral edema. They develop this high output, cardiac output state because you get di- uh, you know, diffuse vasoplegia. And uh, the only way to compensate for this is increasing cardiac output and, and heart rate. Um, you can get acute lung injury, Uh, there's obviously all the hepatic complications such as hypoglycemia, lactic acidosis, hyporammonemia, which we'll talk about a little bit further, uh, coagulopathy. You can develop adrenal insufficiency, acute kidney injury, uh, bone marrow suppression, and particularly in the slower grumbling cases of subacute liver failure, they're at high risk of of sepsis. So one of the important things in this stratification is that the hyperacute liver failure patients and classically, this is acetaminophen, this is just the British term, is that while they tend to be the sickest and often they tend to come to ICU initially, uh, believe it or not, these patients have the most favorable prognosis in the absence of transplant, despite the fact that they also have the highest risk of developing intracranial hypertension. So this is really the group of patients, whereas intensive care providers, if we can you know employ good neuroprotective strategies, and protect the brain and buy the liver some time, you know, put them on N-acetylcysteine, that a lot of these people will walk out of the hospital without needing a liver transplant. In contrast, as I mentioned before, idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury, um, where this is likely immune-mediated and has been going on for several weeks, by the time a lot of these patients end up in hospital, even though they may often present initially to the ward setting, uh, the chances of any kind of reversibility is significantly less and um, generally, if you look at this as an overall population of patients, the the uh, the uh, transplant-free survival rate at 21 days is only around 25%. And most of these people actually need a liver transplant. So, you know, one of the, the, as mentioned, kind of concerning complications of acute liver failure, and particularly acetaminophen toxicity, which makes up about half of those patients, is intracranial hypertension and cerebral edema. And thankfully, uh, we've demonstrated that both in uh, in European data from King's and also data from our group here in, in uh, North America, that rates of intracranial hypertension have been coming down. And I think this is probably something that has been more widely recognized. And there's been a few changes in practice to kind of protect the brain. Um, the mechanisms of intracranial hypertension are, are twofold. You get cytotoxic edema due to astrocyte swelling. Uh, this is because of the, you know, interruption of the urea cycle and you get a, increasing uh, circulating ammonia. This results in an accumulation of glutamine, which is a, an active organic osmole in astrocytes. Um, and unfortunately, because in, in hyperacute liver failure, this happens so ra- rapidly that these astrocytes are unable to expel other active osmols that leads to astrocyte swelling. And then on top of that, because of all this kind of pro-inflammatory uh, uh, mediators that are released with with hepatocyte necrosis you get uh, vasogenic edema and disruption in the blood-brain barrier and this is the other thing that is different uh, from cirrhosis and ACLF is that ALF patients tend to be very inflammatory meaning uh, ammonia correlates very closely with the development of intracranial hypertension Where in contrast to that if you measure serum ammonia levels in cirrhotic patients it doesn't tend to correlate nearly as well with hepatic encephalopathy. So kind of the classic uh, neuroprotective strategies that we use in ALF patients is, is, is kind of bread and butter neurocritical care. You know, we, we keep the head of the bed at 30 degrees. We minimize coughing and, and suctioning and uh, we use lidocaine. We try to maintain a low normal CO2. Uh, you know, propofol is our friend uh, um, in terms of uh, sedation strategies. It's something that we can turn off fairly quickly and get a, get a very rapid assessment. You don't get the complications that you get with benzodiazepine infusions, which we avoid in acute liver failure. Um, we will actively treat fever, but there, you know, in terms of the benefits of therapeutic hypothermia, it has been somewhat underwhelming, certainly uh, in, in the prophylactic setting. Um, and we'll also maintain a, a higher normal CO2 level, uh, uh, sorry, uh, serum sodium level to kind of mitigate this, uh, this uh, fluid shift to dry some, draw some of this fluid out of the astrocytes. And then finally, I'm also going to show you some data that CRRT or continuous renal replacement therapy in itself is an extracorporeal circuit that has significant benefit um, in uh, acute liver failure to start with. So, In terms of uh, predictors of intracranial hypertension, as I mentioned before, uh, this is generally something that we see more commonly in acetaminophen-induced ALF than other causes of ALF, but we also know that these are patients that we will track ammonia levels very closely, and we know that certainly once your ammonia level crosses 150, it significantly increases your risk of developing clinically significant cerebral edema and intracranial hypertension. Yeah, this was a kind of a a, a study that was done from Kings published back in 2007. And a couple of things that are also important is that, you know, kind of representing this hyperden, you know, this pro-inflammatory cascade um, is that these are patients that are often vasoplegic. And this is obviously a multivariable analysis. Uh, acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy. And the other big thing is high-grade coma. And, and generally, a West Haven um, criteria hepatic encephalopathy grade 3 or 4, if you want to keep it simple, is a GCS of less than 9 or 8. So these are often patients that, that will be intubated for airway protection. So the other issue is generally if the patient is talking to you, uh, it's unlikely that they have clinically significant intracranial hypertension. So the rationale of, of an extracorporeal circuit in acute liver failure is a little bit different because we know that certainly with the acetaminophen population, there is potential for hepatic recovery. So the question is that can I use a, a circuit, first of all, as a neuroprotective advice? Can I reverse cerebral edema? Uh, can I scavenge ammonia and potentially uh, mitigate levels of glutamine in the astrocytes? Can I use it as a bridge to spontaneous recovery? Um, and this particularly is, is uh, specific to acetaminophen toxicity. And then furthermore, with overall with ALF, there are some people that won't spontaneously recover. Could this potentially be used as a bridge to liver transplant? So when we look, at, you know, the question comes up, what are, what are you actually removing with extracorporeal circuits? And we know that one of the differences between a lot of the, um, uh, the uh, devices that are used in liver failure um, is that what, a lot of the targets that we're looking at are not necessarily all water soluble, and in fact many of these can be protein bound. So some of the examples that can of of, of substances that can can uh, can be elevated in liver failure, whether acute or acute on chronic, include conjugated bilirubin, uh, bile acids, uh, benzodiazepine receptor ligands, uh, nitric oxide, which can contribute to the hyperdynamic circulation. Uh, inflammatory cytokines. So uh, obviously, when people were looking at various different devices, whether they were albumin dialysis or plasma exchange, um, you know, this is what they were keeping in mind. So there are different circuits that are out there. And there are a couple of key points that I just want to highlight that distinguishes one circuit from another. So there are different, uh, you know, uh, what distinguishes Mars, for example, from, from plasma exchange or Prometheus, um, first of all, it's the membrane type and the, the porosity of the membrane of the, of the filter you're using and how selective it is. So for example, a, a dialysis membrane is, is highly selective in plasma exchange or, or uh, prometheus, which is uh, plasma separation and absorption. It uh, The pore size is significantly uh, bigger, so you're pulling off many different things and it's not nearly as selective. The type of column and filter that you use, uh, the modality of renal replacement therapy, there are devices that that can only run on hemodialysis like Prometheus, where, for example, the Mars circuit, you can piggyback it on almost any different type of of device. Um, The need to have an enriched albumin dialysate. And then finally, the extracorporeal volume that is needed. So as we were talking about here, we mentioned that there are all these, uh, these are kind of the evil humors or the liver toxins that we're, we're, we're considering trying to remove. So uh, a, a, a filter like the MARS filter uh, it has a pore size of 50 kilodaltons. So really at this point, you're removing, you know, lactate, uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, you're removing uh, conjugated bilirubin. Uh, but one of the, the initial theories behind this was trying not to remove clotting factors and, and things that might exacerbate bleeding. So then you have, you know, a device like, uh, like Prometheus and plasma exchange, which we'll talk about as well, where in fact you're removing a lot of immunoglobulins and and bigger compounds. And this is obviously the concern um, with some of these more less selective devices. And I'll talk a little bit more that in plasma exchange, you're actually giving FFP back to the patient, so you mitigate this um, uh, in some respects. So kind of talking generally about extracorporeal blood purification, the simplest form of this is something that we do all the time, which is continuous renal replacement therapy. Um, and specifically looking at this, in, in, uh, there is good data to show that CRRT in itself uh, portends a mortality benefit in acute liver failure, even before you start talking about any of these other circuits. Um, so we know that in acute liver failure in particular, acute kidney injury is common for a variety of different reasons. Um, and often you're instituting uh, CRRT in particular, not for, for the traditional uh, renal indications, but for things like volume overload, uh, to mitigate uh, you know, lactic acidosis, and also for clearance of ammonia. And the benefit of a continuous mode of, of a low-efficiency form of renal replacement therapy is that you minimize rapid solute shifts, uh, hemodynamic changes, and the most important thing is really you're doing this to protect the brain to prevent large spikes in intracranial pressure. So this was a study that our, our group published uh, uh, back in 2018, uh, where we were able to demonstrate, we went through the the large uh, uh, NIH-funded United States Acute Liver Failure Group uh, Network, that's a, a group that I work with, um, that if you compared patients that were on continuous renal replacement therapy with those that were on hemo or those that didn't get anything, that when you're looking at ammonia kinetics, that there was a significant drop between day one and day three, which you didn't see in the other groups. And obviously it is important to highlight that they started at a higher level. So one of, this was a a, a, um, a cohort study so it means that probably the patients with with more increased ammonia levels were preferentially started by the investigators on CRT. So obviously we take that as a criticism. But probably the most important thing, and, and one, one of the other things we understand, and the reason why we did this big multivariable model, um, was to highlight that we tend to do more interventions in sicker patients. So if you are going to, you know, we built, we looked at a, a th- 1,186 patients with acute liver failure, and we adjusted it for markers of severity of illness, uh, for example, like markers of the MELD score were the on pressers, um, age, etiology, um, acetaminophen versus other causes. And this was one of the first studies that demonstrated that, you know, likely 20 years ago when these patients were being put on intermittent hemodialysis, we were probably killing people because we were exacerbating cerebral edema with the rapid blood flow rates. So if you compared patients that got uh, intermittent hemodialysis with, with everybody else, which included nothing or CRRT, your odds of death went up by almost 1.7 times. And I want to highlight that these were mostly patients before uh, the year 2007. Or in contrast to this, if you put people on CRRT compared to no CRRT or hemodialysis, your odds of death went down by 50%. So this was one of the largest kind of sentinel studies that demonstrated that just continuous renal replacement therapy, um, and for example, the way that we run it in our institution is it's continuous veno-venous hemofiltration just because often you can run it without any anticoagulation portended a more significant more uh, survival benefit. So then uh, why that is important is that when we start looking at some of the ALF studies, most patients that were being considered for Mars therapy or plasma exchange had already received CRRT. And that can be some of the challenges when looking at there's their, a whole host of different studies with, with, with slightly different signals. So the, the you know the next step is is using the albumin based techniques um, and there are three kind of different uh, um, circuits that have been tried. So the one I'll speak about the most is the Mars or molecular absorbent recirculation system. There is Prometheus, which has uh, been used primarily in in Europe and in South America. You don't see it much in North America, which is fractionated plasma separation and absorption. And then finally, there's single pass albumin dialysis, which primarily is just taking a regular dialysis circuit or a CRT circuit. And adding a bunch of albumin into the dialysate. So uh, why is uh, is albumin felt to be so important? So this goes back to this toxin hypothesis that most toxins in liver failure are water-insoluble and are albumin-bound. So there are some toxins that contribute to cholestasis and pruritus, as as mentioned, like conjugated bilirubin and bile acids that are highly albumin-bound. And then things that will exacerbate encephalopathy like aromatic amino acids and endogenous benzodiazepine receptor ligands. And the idea as well is that if you look at at a lot of the data around spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, the benefits of albumin exceed what would normally be expected with volume expansion alone. So the idea of albumin dialysis, and in particular the MARS system, is that blood is dialyzed across an albumin-containing solution across a suitable membrane. And in the setting of the MARS circuit, it's an albumin-impregnated membrane. So we'll start with Mars. It's been studied the, the most widely. Um, it's made up of three components. You've got blood being dialyzed across an albumin impregnated membrane. So that's really their proprietary technology. It's this is al- this albuflow membrane that is protein bound. Um, and then the pore size, as mentioned before, is selective. It's 50 kilodaltons. So really below that, you're removing ammonia, aromatic amino acids, and cytokines. So these exacerbate encephalopathy. But things like uh, that are greater than 50 kilodaltons, such as growth factors and hormones and immunoglobulins, you're not removing. So then you have the albumin circuit. And generally what happens is that the albumin and the dialysate will bind uh, the toxins that are bound to the filter. And then this is then regenerated through this albumin circuit because this will this dialysate will then be regenerated across a charcoal Column in an anion exchange column, and generally this anion exchange column here is white. And by the end of a Mars run, it basically turns brown or, or very bright orange. And really, it's the it's the conjugated bilirubin and bile acids is what you're seeing adhering to this. So the idea here is that this 400 cc's of 25% albumin is continuously regenerated. And then one thing to mention as well is that on um, where this dialysate comes in, it's also connected or piggybacked to a renal circuit. And and um, to their credit with Mars. Um, this can be done on a, on a, uh, a Baxter uh, device, or it can be done on a non-Baxter device. It can be hemodialysis or hemofiltration. It can also be intermittent or continuous. It can run on pre-existing machines. So uh, there were initial clinical trials that looked at kind of softer endpoints like, like improved hemodynamics and cephalopathy and renal function that showed promise. And I just kind of list some of these here. There were many of these phase one and two clinical trials. Um, the the in, initial clinical study, a larger study that was done, looked at hepatic encephalopathy, and this was back in 2007. This was a study. It was a multi-center um, uh, American study where they look, this was, uh, just to highlight, looked at cirrhotic patients with acute on chronic liver failure. And these were patients randomized either to standard medical therapy, where standard medical therapy could in, include CRT. And I just want to qualify at this point that the there, there is, you don't get the same benefit um, improving uh, uh, mortality with CRRT in cirrhotic acute, acute and chronic liver failure patients that you see in ALF, so I just want to make that clear. Um, patients in this study uh, received uh, six-hour MARS runs for five days or until there was a two-grade improvement in hepatic encephalopathy, which essentially meant somebody that was intubated, you were able to extubate them, and they were able to talk to you, so that was felt to be a hard endpoint. And in this study, there was a significantly larger group of patients in the MARS group that improved with Mars, uh, or they woke up, essentially, their encephalopathy improved um, as such with the Mars therapy. And and as you'll see, with many of these different uh, studies, there was biochemical improvement. So Mars certainly will make your biochemical profile improve, but this study wasn't really power to look at mortality. So the the largest um, uh, study in ACLF, an acute on chronic liver failure, that actually looked at transplant-free survival was the relief trial. And this was a multicenter European study published in 2013. The first author was Rafael Benares in in Spain. And as you can see, this was underwhelming. And you're going to see this kind of common theme in a lot of the studies of extracorporeal support in cirrhotic acute on chronic liver failure patients, that if you looked at either intention to treat or those who truly received MARS therapy as per protocol, there was no mortality uh, difference. And, you know, similar to the the earlier MARS studies, there was a biochemical benefit and improvement in encephalopathy, um, and there was no difference in adverse events. But this really goes to highlight the fact that, you know, if I had, uh, if somebody had asked me um, to design a study like the relief trial initially, because a large number of these patients that were randomized to MARS therapy, um, or there was a significant number that were not transplant candidates, and really the question is, where are you bridging them to? So probably an outcome in ACLF for, for a device like MARS really should be not necessarily just transplant-free survival, but actually a successful bridge to transplant. So MARS in acute liver failure is actually a different story. And I just want to highlight two studies in particular. Uh, this was the multi-centered French study, the, the, uh, the Fulmar study, that was uh, was done by Fauzi, Saliba, and colleagues in France. This was 16 centers um, um, across uh, across France. Um, Because acute liver failure is rare, um, you know, it took that number of centers to enroll 102 patients. Um, And once again, now we're looking at ALF, so standard medical therapy versus standard medical therapy plus MARS, of which a large number of the SMT patients were on CRRT before they got MARS. Um, one other thing to highlight that is different in, in France than in North America and, uh, in, in the U.S. and certainly in Canada is the time that when these patients were listed on the, on the status 1A list in the U.S. or status 4 in Canada, we call it. In France, the time to getting an organ was actually on average about 16 hours and it's significantly longer in Canada. So, uh, there was a significant number of patients that were randomized to Mars, um, 14. That either didn't get any Mars treatment or they got halfway through their first session and they got called to go to the OR. So that was one of the biggest confounders in the Fulmar study, is a large number of these patients actually went to transplant. So we don't really know. So after you went from intention to treat, which was 102 patient, you of the 53 patients randomized to um, to Mars, only 39 of them actually completed Mars as per protocol because so many of them um, ended up going to the OR for transplant. So uh, this study essentially was a negative study. There was no difference in outcome between um, uh, between Mars and the conventional arm. But I do want to highlight that that this was a significant confounder in the study was the confounder of, of transplant. So um, this is kind of why I'm I'm talking to you today is that our group uh, recently published this study in in critical care medicine and uh, Andrew McDonald was my graduate student. So what we did um, is that uh, there were a significant number of um, of MARS uh, sites in the U.S. Acute Liver Failure Study Group, of which there was our site. There was the Emory in Atlanta uh, and the University of Kansas. Um, And obviously, you know, as mentioned before, it is so difficult to do a a prospective randomized study in an orphan disease uh, that the next best thing is a propensity match study. And because we're part of this large ALFSG registry and we have prospectively collected data on almost 3,000 um, acute liver failure patients dating back to 1998, we were able to do a propensity matched analysis of 104 ALF patients in the ALFSG registry uh, that all received MARS therapy compared to 460 controls that essentially were matched uh, in a propensity fashion on a variety of different factors uh, for, um, for other aspects to essentially come up with an appropriate control group. Now, even doing this, uh, we do want to highlight that in our in our final model, There were still other uh, propensity variables that were not completely matched, and we adjusted for this by doing a conditional logistic regression. So essentially, we had the propensity score. We then, after the fact, had to adjust for the King's College criteria, INR, the use of vasopressors, and age, and we also adjusted for um, etiology because APAP and non-APAP patients have significantly different outcomes. But when you did all this, and this was um, essentially MARS, um, after adjusting for all these factors, was associated with an improvement in uh, 21-day transplant-free survival with an odds ratio of 1.9. So the question that also comes up, once again, I had told you before that we had done a a study uh, from the same group that showed benefit of CRRT. So is this just the MARS, or is it the fact that they also got CRRT? So we did build a second model that adjusted for the use of CRRT, and believe it or not, the the outcome was similar. It was still an odds favoring the use of MARS with an odds ratio of 1.9. So then the third question is that why, um, is there a reason why these results were different from the Fulmar study, apart from the fact that the study design was not necessarily as robust as a prospective randomized trial because we're doing the next best thing. We're kind of building it after the fact. Well, the big reason here was that there was that liver transplant was a significantly less competing risk. So in the Fulmar study, as mentioned, almost 74% uh, of patients went on to liver transplant, where in this study it was only 22%. And 99 out of the 104 patients that received MARS therapy got it for at least eight hours or at least one run, where in the uh, full study, almost 25%, 14 out of the 53 patients had less than one run. So so kind of extending this, you know, what, what are some potential roles? So, you know, in acetaminophen, there is, you know, I, I have no doubt, um, and I, I've seen this in my own practice where there is a potential to bridge some people that initially are not improving on CRRT. If you add your, your next step is Mars therapy that you can bridge them to spontaneous recovery. And there are some cases potentially that you can bridge to transplant. And these are primarily non-acetaminophen causes. So, um, you know, what are the other devices that are out there? So Prometheus kind of came on the scene at the same time as Mars, but it has, has not been as widely used and, and, uh, This is a slightly different device where it's actually the patient's albumin that is, that is separated and then it is kind of cleaned uh, through there, through the series of filters. So that's why the filters are slightly different. So this does not use a separate albumin circuit. It's kind of a little bit more similar to plasma phoresis or plasma exchange. So that being said, that's why the membrane is, the cutoff is, is, it's less selective. It's bigger. It's 250 kilodaltons instead of 50 kilodaltons with Mars. And it's actually the patient's own albumin that cross their albuflow membrane and then across uh, two absorbers. And these absorbers are a neutral exchange resin and an anion exchange resin. And because it's the patient's own uh, plasma, that's why you can't use something like charcoal. So it's the purified albumin returned to plasma that undergoes hemodialysis. So the, the thing with Prometheus as well is that this is a, an all-in-one device and it's, it's put on a background of, of intermittent hemodialysis. So it's not actually com, uh, compatible with uh, CVVH. So this is really what it looks like that you've got the blood coming in. Uh, the blood and the plasma are, are, are separated. It goes through the, the, the two filters. It's returned. And then this blood undergoes standard dialysis and then is returned to the patient. So there was a parallel study to the relief trial. This is also an acute on chronic liver failure patients with cirrhosis that was done on Prometheus with uh, Andreas Kribben. Um, the, The study design was very similar. It was about 145 patients, about half randomized to Prometheus, the other half to standard medical therapy and CRRT if required. And the bottom line was very similar to the, uh, to the uh, relief trial. There was no mortality difference in ACLF. And once again, this was also confounded by the fact that, that a low number of patients in the study underwent liver transplant. So um, in terms of other options, so, so we know that, that if you look at Prometheus and at Mars, you know they tend to be fairly expensive. The cost of a single circuit of Mars, for example, is about 2000 bucks. Uh, you need specialized uh, nursing care um, I will say that having having run a, a program here, that our nurses actually really like running Mars. It's it's a it's a fun technology, but there are you know added nursing costs and and the cost of the circuit. Something that that is is cheaper and is is widely available to most uh, intensive care units is plasma exchange. Um, and this is a study that was done in acute liver failure. Um, this was done in in uh, at th- in three centers at King's College Hospital in London, as well as Denmark and in Finland. Um, You know, this took a long time to enroll um, 182 patients because, as mentioned before, you're looking at an orphan disease. But the interesting thing with with this study that was published, uh, that Finn Larson published in 2016, is it showed that plasma exchange was actually associated with a mortality benefit in acute liver failure. And once again, this kind of goes back to this reversibility that um, it wasn't really seen in those patients that went on to get a liver transplant. And most of these patients are subacute liver failure. Uh, but the patients that were not liver transplanted, where the vast majority of these patients were acetaminophen toxicity that weren't either weren't transplant candidates for a variety of reason. There was a significant mortality benefit with high volume plasma exchange compared to those um, that did not get high volume plasma exchange. And they did some interesting um, molecular work uh, in this in this study where uh, they actually looked at what was really the plasma exchange doing and what. The they noticed is that there was a reduced circulating level of damage-associated molecular patterns uh, and TNF-alpha and IL-6 that are pro-inflammatory in the patients that got plasma exchange, and also there was some modulated of mo- uh, modulated markers of monocyte activation, and also there was mi- uh, mitigated activation of neutrophils. So essentially, that you are you are kind of altering the uh, the um, the immunological profile of the patient. So in kind of summarizing this, um, you know. If you look at the acute-on-chronic liver failure data first, if you look at survival, it's very underwhelming. So, so really, because a lot of these patients, uh, you know, have fairly advanced uh, liver disease, looking for transplant-free survival in, a, in an ACLF patient that's sick with a with a device has been kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, waiting for Godot, if you will. Um, the largest studies were the Cribben, um, uh the uh, Prometheus study, and the Baniaras-Mar study, and they were both negative. And as I mentioned before, probably if these studies were to be redone, it would probably have been better to look at, at bridge to transplant as an endpoint. And, and that's something we really can't ca- uh, comment on at this point. In contrast, in acute liver failure, the, the studies are a little bit more interesting. Uh, plasma exchange was the Larson study. Uh, that was a randomized study that did show a mortality benefit, particularly in those that were not undergoing liver transplant that were primarily acetaminophen toxicity and then our study that was recently published that was propensity matched, and we admit that that was a limitation of the study design, that it wasn't a prospective randomized study. But it did show that there was a benefit of MARS uh, even beyond CRT in acute liver failure patients. So what about the uh, bioartificial uh, devices? And and just to highlight, these are an order of magnitude more complicated in um, in their setup. So so often to set up a MARS circuit, you know, it's an additional um, Kind of device that you bring into the standard ICU room, but to be honest with you, you know, the having a patient that's intubated on CRT versus intubated on Mars, there's not a huge difference. Or some of these uh, devices that are that are bioreactors, if you will, it's much much more complicated, and you need a much bigger kind of area to work. Um, and the most common ones that have been studied are the the ELAD or the extracorporeal liver assist device, um, and then there's also the assist, uh device. Both of these were kind of uh, derived previously in in the states. So the idea behind the uh, ELAD device is that this is a a cell, a C3A cell line bioreactor. Um, the, what they used as their, um, as their cell line is that these were actually hepatoblastoma cells, um, that retain some uh, hepatocyte function. Um, but obviously they're not, they're not perfect hepatocyte cells. And I think that's one of the problems you're going to see as we kind of go through the, through the data and this was a device you know and, and this just kind of highlights how much more complicated this is because when these are shipped to you in your site you also have to make sure that the bio cartridge is still uh viable and reactive before you put a patient on on the device and and i suspect that some of the other challenges also are that that you have you know somebody coming to your institution that needs to be certified to uh, to work in your institution and on, on top of that you have to make sure that that everything in this device is uh is is good to go so uh Kind of the the short answer is that the results of ELAD have have been very underwhelming. Uh, The first study was done actually back in the mid nineties in acute liver failure. Uh, This was done. It was a small pilot study done in 24 patients in the UK um, and essentially stratified patients with um, into two groups, one with a favorable prognosis and then a a group with a more unfavorable prognosis. And when they looked at this, there was no statistically significant difference with patients that went on the ELAD device. Um, this was a study that was published in 2018, where the idea here is, and I, I give credit to the to this group that it's like if we have to look at at cirrhotic ACLF patients, is there a group potentially with some reversibility? And they picked alcoholic hepatitis, where the idea was it wasn't necessarily all a cirrhotic scarred liver that there might have been a component of inflammation. So they randomized uh, 203 patients to either ELAD or standard medical therapy, and unfortunately this was a, a negative study. Um, with no significant mortality benefit. After this, uh, this was originally called the VTI 208 study. Um, they did a, a, further study looking at a couple of the subsets of, um, patients in this study, but unfortunately that, that study, it hasn't been published, but the, uh, the initial uh, preliminary results were negative. And if you look up vital therapies in ELAD, you, you probably won't find it anywhere anymore because they've kind of, uh, stopped this, uh, uh this line of their, uh, of their company. So hepatocyst is a little bit different. Um, this was a device that used porcine hepatocytes. Uh, and obviously, you ne- when you build a bioreactor like this, the, the thinking here is that you have to make sure that it's done in a sterile, infectious environment, that we're not getting viruses, for example, from pigs into human blood, um, as previously with the hepat- uh, hepatoblastoma cell lines, that you don't want cancer cells ending up in a, in a human. Um, so this was obviously done in a, in a, in a, in a fairly unique way. Um, This study uh, was published, you know, this is also an old study going back to 2004, where they looked at acute liver failure, and the idea here was, once again, potentially a group of patients with some uh, reversibility, and this, unfortunately, was also underwhelming and was a uh, a negative study. So really to this point, the the bioartificial devices um, have really been underwhelming. That we don't have any studies today that have showed a, a survival benefit. There are other devices under study at the moment, and some of them are actually kind of a hybrid of albumin dialysis with the bioreactor, and you know, it will be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, but, but to this point, there isn't really a, a, a bio circuit out there that has shown benefit. So in conclusion, um, you know, extracorporeal liver support and acute and acute on chronic liver failure Uh, acute liver failure is a rare orphan condition. This is the development of hepatic encephalopathy in patients with that previously do not have liver disease. And particularly acetaminophen-induced ALF is associated with high rates of cerebral edema. In contrast, acute on chronic liver failure, this is cirrhosis with multi-organ failure, which is associated with a high baseline mortality in the absence of liver transplant. Artificial uh, extracorporeal liver support systems um, in ALF, Um, at its basic continuous renal replacement therapy and likely specifically continuous veno-venous hemofiltration has been associated with decreased levels of ammonia and improved outcomes in acute liver failure. Plasma exchange in acute liver failure based on the MARS study has shown improvement in transplant-free survival. That's likely driven in the, once again, the acetaminophen uh, population. And then with uh, MARS and acute liver failure, Um, Based on this propensity map study that we've published recently, there potentially is an improvement in 21-day transplant-free survival. And in the acetaminophen-induced ALF, there's a potential to bridge to recovery. Um, In terms of uh, artificial uh, extracorporeal systems and acute on chronic liver failure, there has not been a a study to date that has showed a mortality benefit in ACLF. And likely this has to do with the fact of, of the lack of reversibility And potentially future studies should really look at extracorporeal support as a bridge to liver transplantation in ACLF. So I I know that was quite a fair amount of information. I thank you for your time, and I would be happy to answer your questions.